everybody, welcome to episode 56 of Literary Disco, Shirley Jackson. Today's episode is in two parts. We'll start with a bookshelf revisit, a segment in which Todd, Julia, and I take down a book from our shelves to discuss. And sticking with the theme of the Shirley Jackson story we'll talk about later, for today's episode we'll select our favorite posthumously published work. And for our main discussion, we will talk about Shirley Jackson's short story, The Man in the Woods, which recently was published in The New Yorker alongside an interview with Jackson's son about the amount of unpublished work he and his family have uncovered. In addition to that story, we'll also read Jackson's famous older story, The Lottery, first published in 1948. Both stories are available online. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me are essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel and novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. Hi, guys. Hi. And we should note this is an important day in literary disco history. This is our last episode where Julia Pistel is a single lady. That's right. Uh, for a minute there... I thought that was Taps. For, for a minute, I thought Ryder had gas. I'm like, oh, that's weird. It was like, it was the sad wedding march. Why is Ryder farting? That's... <laughs> that seems like a well, march. yes. I know you guys are all sad. I am off the market, as they say. But yeah, I'm very excited. It's going to be great. You guys are coming. We are. It's going to be fun. We are. Yep. We will be it. there. We we just learned, uh, and I think both Ryder and I are, are concerned about this just somewhat, that there's going to be pie at the wedding, but not cake. Can you? Can, That's right. Do you care to discuss this cake. at all with the audience? I absolutely. Um, most cake is too dry, and has too much frosting, or has weird pieces of frosting that aren't really food that you. Can we just say it? Cake sucks. Cake sucks. Cake sucks. It's like so rare that cake is good. Ice cream Thank cake, you, awesome. Awesome, but cake just as a uh, no. Yeah, Seriously. exactly. I cake in my the way. only good cakes I'm making the air quotey fig- fingers are ice cream cake and cheesecake, and or we all know cake. those are just pies in, Ooh, dis- in disguise. I, I like crumb cake. Crumb cake's good. Crumb cake's good too. But anyway, we're having pies instead. Okay. The whole thing's Smart. gonna be uh, it's like a daytime picnic vibe, so we figure people will be more excited about pie at that time. Now, um, yeah, and I don't know if anyone else is concerned about this, but I know that I am a little bit. Um, when Ryder got married, um, the officiant okay. was me. Okay. Yeah. And, um, I mean, I haven't been contacted regarding this yet and we're, we're, we're a week out. Yeah. So um, I just wanted to, just wanted to find out in terms of, uh, that, um, what okay, time did you um, need me there? Well, today we're going to be discussing Shirley Jackson. <laughs> uh, you, know, you can give your... I have listeners. I have done something stupid and given Todd two minutes to say whatever he wants during the ceremony. So we'll see what happens. Be a lot of baseball talk. <laughs> oh, God. He's just going to recite the lyrics to that baseball song. No, can it, you imagine? If it is an extended baseball metaphor, I'm going to. I have. I've, kill I've you. actually already composed a poem that, that, I, that I've chosen to read. Marriage is like a first no, baseman. My, my poem is Ode to a Horse Girl. <laughs> Greg, you may take her from the stable. But she will never be stable. Oh my god. That's awesome. I might do that actually. <laughs> don't do that. Don't do that. There's 
two real horse girls. Oh. Here, so you guys can play your own little game and figure out who they are. Oh, we'll know. You'll, you won't be able to guess. They'll be the ones eating the oh, carrots. Oh, we'll know. We'll spot them from a mile away. <laughs> <laughs> They'll be the ones eating They'll be the, the ones hoarding sugar cubes. <laughs> Just licking salt licks for no reason. Oh, good. Okay. This is going to be great. I regret inviting you. <laughs> wearing the feed bags. They'll just be the ones wearing the feed bags. Oh, gosh. <laughs> wow. Okay. All right. So let's, uh, let's just, for our bookshelf reason, we wanted to talk about our favorite posthumous works. Um. <laughs> Uh, anybody want to go first? <laughs> oh, God. I feel like, oh, God. like my next book might be posthumous because Julia's going to kill me. <laughs> no, I, I'm in the mental state where anything you say, I'm just going to laugh. I'm just going to laugh. <laughs> I think that's wise. Well, you know what? Uh, I, I will say sort of what got me thinking about the posthumous stuff it actually doesn't have anything to do with books, which is no surprise. Um, but I've been... Uh, hearing that Michael Jackson song that they've been playing incestuously, inc- I almost said incestuously, <laughs> incessantly, <laughs> a little Freudian slip there, um, that that Michael Jackson song they've been playing incessantly, um, that sounds like an old Michael Jackson song because it was from 1983, and thinking about how weird it is that we continue to put stuff out by people after they've died, that the market doesn't disappear for it. And then I was thinking about how when Will was on, we were talking about you know the sci-fi people were like after my death, honey, oh, right. you must Continue complete right. serial number thirty-seven B of the Mordor fantasy. Um, so that that's what sort of got me on the posthumous thought process and and had me thinking about the Shirley Jackson story I had read earlier. You know, I can't think of a lot of posthumous books that I've read that. Um, I really love, uh, you know, I, I couldn't get through The Pale King, uh, the David Foster Wallace book. I didn't even try. Um, Bought it, didn't read it. There, the, it's on that shelf. <laughs> the ones that I have read um, that I, I, I've been disappointed by, like, uh, you know, the books are completed by someone else, invariably are horrible. Um and so, you know, the the stuff that stands out in my mind of great posthumous works ends up being music and film. So I think about the the Nirvana live album that uh, was released, the Unplugged album that was released after Kurt Cobain's death. And I was never a huge uh, Nirvana fan necessarily, but that Unplugged album was really good. And it had the import of Cobain's death, putting different meaning into the songs because, you know, he's singing these things and saying these things. And you know that he's already, you know, killed himself from depression, drug addiction, and all that stuff. And so that weight of how the people died, I think, changes the way we appreciate the work. And then the other thing that I was thinking about recently was Heath Ledger in the Batman movie, where he was dead and and then was obviously so alive as the Joker. And it, it's weird to see living people, or to see people who have died in movies, because they are alive there obviously and so it's a different sort of experience in reading them or or seeing them um yeah and and, i mean in both music and in film you're talking about a like a a record of an event you know they 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 had to have laid down something they either acted in front of a camera or you know spoke sang in front of a microphone or played in front of a microphone um with with books it's it's a little little trickier i think because a lot of times they're taking someone's notes Mm -hmm. or compiling you know thousands of pages like with the pale king i I mean didn't his editor 
I mean, weren't there thousands of pages that he cut down? That's just a little sketchier to me. It's a little harder to say that that's a a worthwhile project. Um, But then you get stuff like Bolano's books that came out after his death, and they're amazing, but they came out in English after his death, I suppose. Um, Mm -hmm. And they're, you know, they're remarkable pieces of work. But isn't it, wasn't it Kafka who wanted everything destroyed after he died? Or one of those, somebody really famous who we only have their work because somebody published it after they were dead. Um, Mm. I mean, the most famous example is Confederacy of Dunces, right? Right. Where he had killed himself, uh, unable to publish the book, and then it became this great work of you know literature but i actually can't stand that book so <laughs> i'm kind of alone have you do you guys like that book i have not read uh, it. um i i was having trouble also thinking of uh of books to read for this um and then i was like maybe i'll read confederacy of dunces in one day so i can have something to talk about and then i realized what the hell was i thinking two of my favorite writers of all time are posthumous works and we don't think of them that way one being Emily Dickinson. Oh, so right. almost 100% right. of her work was posthumous, and it's undated, so we don't know at what point in her life it was written. And she demanded that all her letters be destroyed. So all of her letters that you know she had in her possession were all destroyed. So like, hmm. all, her life really exists in you know, her letters that other people kept and her poems, which are have no relationship to time, really. They just like you know, float in a drawer for however many years until her sister published them. And then the other example, um, which is really cliche, but I think really meaningful, is the diary of Anne Frank. Um, of course. You know, changing, you know, the changing our idea of war and what it does to children. I mean, um, I, I just think it's so amazing that all the posthumous work that I really love or connect or care about, um, and this is also includes that nanny who took, pictures that has now become really famous in the last year or so yeah in chicago and new york yeah and they're all right? yeah exactly something meyer or something right yeah and they're all you know women whose voices wouldn't have been traditionally published at all i mean i was looking on wikipedia about emily dickinson right before this to you know kind of refresh my memory and you know she had had a few poems published but they were um, they were edited so heavily that they were, you know, they were like cute. They would end like a cute rhyme, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, by having her work published posthumously, you know, basically when the world was ready for that style, you know, it really gave her freedom that she wouldn't have had in her life. And same with Anne Frank. I mean, like, it, can you imagine if a fourteen-year-old girl was like, "Publish my diary," you know? Obviously, that would never have flown at the time. So. And now every fourteen-year-old girl on. In the world has their diary published on the internet. You know, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's sort of the, the, the difference, though. And, and then, you know, Anne Frank was probably a remarkable intelligence that, you know, we... Well, obviously she was. Um, yeah. Which makes it even sadder. Because you look at someone like Emily Dickinson, and she wrote that over the course of her life's work. And Anne Frank wrote the diary of Anne Frank when she was 14 years old, living in a closet. You know, I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing. So what did you come up with, Ryder? Um, well, one of my favorite books, um, I, when I first read it, I didn't even realize it was posthumous, is A Movable Feast by Hemingway. Mm. And um, it was actually published, I think, in the 1960s by his last wife um, from a bunch of his writings about when he lived in Paris in the 1920s. And it's still my favorite Hemingway book. Um, 
I mean, I'm I'm not like a huge Hemingway fan, but as you guys know, I ended up writing my thesis at Bennington about Hemingway, and it was mainly inspired from the first time I read A Movable Feast when I was a teenager, and he talked about losing his manuscripts. Um, he, he lost everything that he wrote the first year uh, that he lived in Paris when he moved there um, at the age of 21 or 22 to become a writer. Um, he lived with his wife, and his wife... Um, got on the train with everything he had written for the first year um, to meet him. And um, she lost the the suitcase or it was stolen. No one knows what happened. So that's what I ended up writing my thesis about was the lost manuscripts of Hemingway. But, um, it, you know, I, my fascination with that subject came from his account of it, that happening in A Movable Feast. Um, and then, of course, I, I read a bunch of biographies and, and, and whatnot. But A Movable Feast is really... Amazing. I don't know if you guys have ever read it, but it's such it. a great book um, for mm-hmm. anybody that that's a writer. I think, especially if you. Mm-hmm. But I think artists in general can. Yeah, you know, I, 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 I'm positive. I've talked about this book before because I think I talked about hunger, um, and he how he talks about um, being hungry and and writing and um, living in Paris. Uh, so yeah, that, and and I think that that's a great work of literature that should have been published. And I'd love to read the unedited version. I mean, as far as I know, his um, his wife um, edited it um, pretty heavily. Uh, you know, took the the papers. Um, so I'd love to read more of uh, of that time period um, because it's a great little portrait of you know the life of a young writer. Actually, what's cool about Movable Feast is that it's it's not just a portrait of the life of a young writer. It's the portrait of an older person looking back on their life as a young writer. And it's that um that tone, you know, it's it, it's definitely you know suffused with nostalgia and um it's a really bittersweet, you know, he's talking about um a period in his life that that he was full of hope um for a writing career, but also for a family and a relationship with his wife, Hadley. And the family, you know, Hemingway's family life wasn't that great. And his relationship with Hadley didn't work out. And that's that's throughout the, the Unmovable Feast, you feel that, um, the sort of sadness about looking back on this hope. Um, it's a really, really, really beautiful book. Uh, for anybody who wants, you know, who is a writer or appreciates literature, I, I highly recommend it. I don't like Hemingway's novels that much. I love Hemingway's short stories. And I think The Sun Also Rises is a masterpiece. His first novel, well, not technically his first novel, but the, the novel that made him famous. And um, so I would I would say read A Movable Feast and then read The Sun Also Rises in that order, actually, because for me, The Sun Also Rises is informed so much by his personal life and, and that sort of expat lifestyle that was that artist, you know, all those artists living in Paris at that time. Um, it really, um, a movable feast positions The Sun Also Rises really well. And um, it's a it's a masterpiece. So I, I would I would highly recommend A Movable Feast and then then The Sun Also Rises. I love it, too. And I love the stuff with uh, his friendship with Fitzgerald. That's right, yeah, so near the end wonderful. of a movable feast. Yeah, it's a great portrait of Fitzgerald. It's kind of tragic because, you know, you see yeah. the alcoholism already ravaging Fitzgerald. Um, it's really good. Speaking of Hemingway, though, it reminded me of another great actual posthumous book, which is um, the short story collection by Brees DJ Pancake. What? Um, I've never known if I pronounced his name correctly. He had a very Hemingway-esque style. He uh, he killed himself. This is I think he killed himself in 1980 or something like that. Um, and his book didn't come out until 1983. Um, and he wrote very short, compact, rural short stories, um, sort of, you know, in, I haven't read the book in years. In retrospect, though, it's sort of a combination of Daniel Woodrell and 
Raymond Carver and Hemingway, you know, people living rural lives with personal problems that are are writ pretty large. Um, and there was a period of time, I, I should look and see when his book came out. I, it might have been like 1984, 1985, something like that. Um, let's see here. Uh, I've never heard of this person, but I am definitely into it. He, um, he killed, okay, here we go. Uh, so yeah, his book came out in 1983 um, and was posthumously nominated for the Pulitzer Prize. So there you go. Um, so, you know, his, his stories were, I think, were very influential for a time. They, they appeared in the big magazines, the Atlantic Monthlies, places like that. Um, and I think for writers that were sort of in writing workshops in the late 80s, early 90s, if their professors had read his stuff, you got to see it. But I think he's really sort of tapered off in people's knowledge of him. I mean, that you guys haven't heard of him, I think, is, is fairly notable. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, another tortured, interesting writer who didn't get the acclaim in life that he he certainly got um afterwards awesome we should maybe look at his book one time might, might not be a bad i i'm literally clicking at. my one click order on amazon right now oh well so you'll get so, it in about a month uh, yeah. if it's a hatchet book that that amazon shit is like i can't believe that i can't believe that yeah i think the problem with uh giving Skynet the power is that eventually they're going to take the power. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well. Turns out to be the issue. <laughs> How do you guys just feel generally, though, about your works being published after your death? Yeah, publish them all. I just hope somebody, you know, edits and collects them. I don't know, man. I, I'm not going to be precious about... Like, if, if somebody finds something meaningful or valuable in what I've written that I didn't think was worth it at the time, if somebody, you know, goes through... I mean, because nowadays we're going to have records of all of this stuff, right? right? Like, somebody's going to find a hard drive, and we have everything's recorded in a way that almost no generation preceding ours has been that recorded, unless somebody kept it in a drawer. Now it's like, you can go back and find every old hard drive, and so, I mean, I'm... I would... Fine. If somebody thinks it's worthwhile, great, you know? I don't know. It doesn't bother me. Yeah, I, I would say anything that I deliberately wrote is fine, but please nobody <laughs> publish my emails. Like, that's really? just not g I say open it up, man, because, yeah. I mean, what do you care? Like, I, I, I mean, what is it, you know, like, wouldn't it be great to have Emily Dickinson's letters right now? Like, screw her. Like, we should have that. That would help. I don't know. It's like when you, you know, when people, like... You know, I, I, famous writers in the 19th century when they would, you know, excise all the their love letters. And it's like, no, we want those. Like, yeah, you thought it was really crazy at the time. But nowadays it would probably seem incredibly tame and romantic and wonderful. And Yeah, but then, you know, but, like, I don't know if either of you saw that Salinger uh, documentary that was also the book that David Shields wrote. Um, you know, where they talk to everyone and look at all of his letters. They go through all of his shit. And I just think that man wanted to live outside of the public sphere do we do we deserve to know what you know the letters he was writing to his friends i mean at what level does your personal correspondence is it not for public consumption and i think the the moment you call it personal correspondence <laughs> you know i don't know i think it it it's a challenging thing um because obviously you're not going to know uh if people like the work or not but and it, it probably doesn't matter, and people have an insatiable desire to have the things that belong to people who have died. I mean, you know, whether they be artists or your grandfather, you know. Um, 
but I, I I feel like like the letters and that sort of thing that feels weirdly off limits. That doesn't mean I don't like to read them when they get published, but it, it seems it seems so personal and it reveals the person so much more that it almost becomes impossible for me to see the art hmm. anymore. I think right. for me, it's a question of like my I've written a lot of letters and yeah, yes, world, you can publish those. <laughs> But it's the it's the fact that with emails and G chats and texts and stuff that, you know, I'm not putting a lot of deliberation into anything that I say. And maybe I should. Maybe I should write every G chat with the knowledge that someone might publish it someday. Um rather than I kind of feel like I do like <laughs> I feel like when no I mean I feel like when I write a letter or send any text or anything I'm kind of assuming that it's going out there in the world in some yeah. very real capacity you know mm-hmm. as long as somebody doesn't publish my internet history <laughs> fine like that I, I guess I don't yeah think no of. one no one wants to <laughs> but, see that shit <laughs> yeah no one no one should I think a but, lot of you know, people want to see your internet history writer but but it's, but like letters, I feel like if I'm sending a letter, it's up to the person I sent it to whether. That's true. It's their property you know, then. I don't know. But I... what about um your texts, so like the, you know, like us texting back and forth? What about things like that? No fuck no. Well, here I get really stupid because I I have a really hard time not using correct punctuation. Oh, yeah. me too. And like, do you know like I do it sometimes because of course we all do. But like it bothers me to think that it wouldn't be correct in some way. And, I, and part of that, I think, does come from this awareness that I'm sending something out into the world, and even though it's just to one person or a couple people, that it should be, you know, in the form of, like, you know, public consumption. I don't know. Yeah. I, 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 I don't know. I mean, I definitely am not thinking, like, oh, everybody wants right. to read this or everybody should want to read this. But I, I guess if I'm if I'm writing something, it's it's an act of declaration it's different than a speech act like if i'm talking to someone personally in a room that is a speech act and i i that is private i guess but i i i feel like if i'm putting something in text it's it's public and i i maybe that's an old-fashioned way of thinking because nowadays you know i mean i came of age before text i mean text messaging wasn't a thing until i was about 22 or 23 so i was i was definitely older entering the text world. So I, I, I imagine people younger feel differently about this, but I still think of text as, as kind of being something written well, isn't in stone. It, isn't it sort of just the presumption of privacy? So if if I'm... Yeah. And this I, this really ties into the, the publishing work posthumously. If I'm texting someone messages, I feel like it is a conversation without the ability to speak for some reason because I can't pick up the phone to call them even though I'm texting from the phone. Um and I feel like there is that presumption of privacy. Now, of course, that that's false. That everything that we do that we do on the internet is monitored by someone. Um, most likely, people I gave money to and elected to office. Um, <laughs> but I think that that's that strange thing is that people today live so publicly that the things they would never dream to say to a million people they put on their Twitter, and that becomes obviously public property all of that has changed just in the last 10 years which i think changes the way we view posthumous works because if someone is writing something on their computer and saving it we're thinking well it's not like you know in the old days where they wrote it on a piece of paper and crumpled it up and threw it away and then someone found it in their garbage they that person wanted it for posterity there i think there's a leap of intellectual thought about what we want and what we keep 
now versus yesterday. Mostly, though, I agree with Ryder in that if people look at my internet history, I'm going to prison. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, um... Wow. It's research for your fiction, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah it yeah. is That's total what you're about. research because I didn't know stuff could go in that way. So, oh my God. <laughs> well, on that note, uh, glad you said that. <laughs> why don't Why don't we come back after an arbitrary break where we play music to talk about Shirley Jackson, who is dead but has new work out in the New Yorker. Welcome back, everybody, from our arbitrary break, where uh, I had some chocolate-covered almonds. Ryder had Chinese food. Julie, what did you have? I had a lot of water and some pretty old coffee. So we're going to get through this second half of the show pretty quick, because Julie's going to need to use the restroom. That's right. Um, So in the first half of the show, we talked a bit about posthumous writing. And the reason was, uh, just a few weeks ago, The New Yorker published a short story by Shirley Jackson called... The Man in the Woods. Um, And if you're not familiar with Shirley Jackson, she's most known for the story The Lottery. Um, And if you're not familiar with The Lottery, she's most known for whatever it was that the people who wrote Hunger Games were thinking when they started (laughs) to write The Hunger Games. Yep. Um, And she also wrote The Haunting of Hill House, uh, which was a uh, a horror film, a horror novel that became the movie The Haunting. Um, she died very young. She was 48 years old. She died in, um, in 19, let's see here, 1965 at the age of 48. She lived in Bennington, Vermont, which is where actually the three of us went to graduate school. Um, and she has, since her death, become, I think, more famous than she was uh, in life. And the lottery is one of those stories I think a lot of people read over and over again. Um, but the story that was in The New Yorker, The Man in the Woods, was actually discovered in her archives and her children have been going through her archives looking for things and they have found a tremendous number of unpublished writings uh, by her and the new yorker has published one previous story already um, and then this one which just came out in uh, the april 28th issue of the new yorker and is uh, free online so we'll put a a link up to it um, all over the the internet for you guys to read She's a she's an interesting writer. Um, subsequent to her death, there's now the Shirley Jackson Award, which is given to um, horror and speculative fiction writers, um, and I, I think administered by Paul Tremblay, who's a wonderful writer. Um, so th- there's there's a whole new life for her, and then having a short story in the New Yorker introduces her to an entirely different world. I first, of course, came in contact with her with the Lottery, which is when I suspect both of you guys did as well. Me too. I had yes. never heard of her until this week. I You're can't kidding. believe you never read so. that story before. I don't. Maybe I had read it, but it didn't stick with me. I mean, once I started, I was like, "This sounds familiar," but I think I just heard of it. I don't think I'd ever read it, so I didn't know who Shirley Jackson was until this. So this is all sort of new to me, um, which hopefully will be good for discussion because um, yeah, I'm a little. Well, let me ask you this then. So does she always write? Because both of these stories um, that we that I read for today, the, the lottery and the man in the woods, they have this sort of folklore mm-hmm. mythic quality. Is that her thing? Like, is that what she does? Like, are, she always writes with the sort of self-conscious, uh, 
folklore style? Well, The Haunting at Hill House is more of a regular horror novel. Mm -hmm. Um, So I've read that, and that's really great. Um, It's really fun and mysterious and Stephen King-y, really. Um, And she, but yeah, these are, I've read a couple other stories by her, but they don't, they haven't like stuck with me too much, which I think is a part of that folklore quality is like they float in your imagination, however briefly, and then they have their twist or shifted perspective or whatever, and then they're just part of your consciousness rather than something that has so many details in it that you're thinking about all the time. Mm-hmm. But I will say that I've read the lottery many times. So like there have been times where I've thought like, hey, remember that story? I'm going to read it again today. And it's always, I, I think the writing in the lottery is just wonderful. It's just amazing. So creepy and do you, yeah, do I, I love it. Do you remember, Julia, <clears throat> excuse me, the adaptation of the lottery that they did in the 90s with Dan Cortez from MTV? No. No, I don't. In my mind, they really changed it because it's like it was like a two-hour movie starring Dan Cortez, um, and I think it was modern day. And Dan Cortez shows up and walks into the lottery and breaks it up. But I don't know if that's true. I just remember that Dan Cortez <laughs> starred in the adaptation, and I remember thinking at the time, "Oh, this is absurd. What's Dan Cortez going to do?" And if you guys don't know who Dan Cortez was, either listeners or people on the show right now. This is- this is really important. He was a guy who wore a lot of bandanas on MTV <laughs> and sleeveless shirts. I don't know who he is. Oh. Just as Ryder doesn't know the all-important Shirley Jackson, I don't know who Dan Cortez is. Dan, Dan Cortez was Polly Shore without the humor. Um, so, <laughs> just a douchey guy, basically. Um, but to answer your question, my experience also is the same with Julia's, which is that she's always sort of at that bridge between what is understandable, and then what is mythic um, in her work. And I think that's what gives her, I think that's what gives the lottery specifically such a lasting quality, and, and why when, when we mention the Hunger Games, and we'll, we'll get back to that in just a second, um, why it's so um, still part of our culture, because it's that story of basically a human sacrifice for the good of a city, that's something that I think has come up in lots of popular culture, over the course of the 50-some-odd years subsequent to the publication of the story itself. So it, it's it's a lasting tale, for sure. The Man in the Woods, um, well, may, let, let's talk first about the lottery, um, and then talk about The Man in the Woods. So, Ryder, you'd never read this before, so yeah. let, you had no idea what was going to happen, I suppose. Tell us, tell us I kind of got it pretty quickly, though. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so the lottery is, you know, it's, it's sort of in this nameless small town, and it begins with the it's it's June twenty seventh, and there's all this excitement that it's lottery day, and it starts with the children of the town gathering together, and they're all getting stones, and and you know that this there's some sort of ritual thing going on, and then there's lots of uh, kind of generic cliche conversation uh, about the lottery and how things aren't like they used to be, but we still do the lottery, and all the people of the town, you know, it's a tiny town. It turns out there's 300 people, which to them is a lot of people because, you know, it used to be even less. But, you know, there's already pretty quickly in the story the sense of foreboding that something creepy and kind of unspoken is, un- you know, not, it's not going to be good. You yeah. know it's not right. going to be good. And sure enough, um, you know, it, you, they draw the lottery in one family uh, picks the, the, the black mark, and then that means a member of their family has to then do another sort of secondary lottery, and the the wife gets the one with the black mark, the, the paper with the black mark, and 
she's gonna get stoned to death is the the ending of the story i'm not i mean i'm giving it all away because the story is five pages long and and worth reading right um but it does it has this very sort of um every town quality uh you know it reminded me of uh like a nathaniel hawthorne story a little bit of like Mm -hmm. you know um young goodman brown or one you know one of those like because uh, it, it sort of gets to the tension of the individual and the community and the sort of, there's something essentially American about it. Um, I don't know what, it's that American small town conservative creepiness. Um, and and the way that, you know, it has that like all shucks quality going mm-hmm. for it that is kind of, um, you're like creeped out by it. Uh, you know, like a David Lynch tone. Um and I, I I thought it was it's really good. It's great. It's fun. It's um, it's disturbing, and it, and it gets at some kind of truth. I think about the way communities need to purge themselves of, uh, in you know people they consider outsiders or. I don't know, or I don't even know how to read this exactly, because it's not like the person that chose the lottery did something wrong. It's no. not like a moral tale, a morality tale, the way that Nathaniel Hawthorne's stories are. It's more, I guess, just about the way that communities enjoy turning on one of their own, because there's a sense of glee at the kids collecting the stones that are eventually going to stone somebody to death. And there's a sort of, like, buzz and gossipy excitement. Um, it just it feels like a small town, you know? It feels familiar to you, um, well, and that they way. do the lottery in the same place where they do the square dance, the teen club, and right. the Halloween program. You know, it, it's, right? And if there's a if there's lottery in June, the corn will bloom. Isn't that the line that that's in right. there, something like that? Right. There's all these sort of folksy sayings and folksy. Yeah, you know, it's a it's a it's a really cool tone. I like it. I so the question is like, what is the story about? And that's. You know, this is something I really like because when I I have not read it since The Hunger Games came out. And basically, The Hunger Games is an expansion of this exact idea, but it, like, fleshes out all the reasons why, you know, like, a community might do this. Um, And, like, in a very detailed way, and that's part of what's interesting about The Hunger Games. But what's interesting about this story is that it doesn't do it. It doesn't really explain, other than The Harvest, why this superstition and ritual you know, has such a hold on what's implied as the whole country or the whole world. And I I really love that because what it's doing is is pointing at the fact that we are, you know, go through rituals and traditions without, you know, taking for granted that they are important and that they must be done. Um, without reason, without explanation, nothing. I mean, this really offers almost no reason why the community does this. So, like, I think that's actually, in a way, more meaningful than spinning out this whole allegory of why exactly we might do this. It just points to this dark side of human nature that we're doing these rituals. And when you are not picked, you know, the relief of you not being picked is so much that you will turn on someone else who is less fortunate than you. So, like, her... um, what's her name tessie who ends up dying like her children are like overjoyed and almost in like a gladiator stadium type way like showing off that they're not the ones that are dying when of course they are about to stone their own mother to death um so i love and they that. even give the the littlest kid a bunch of little pebbles to throw yeah. at at her uh, yeah yeah so i like i really like that archetypical quality and it's um you know it sounds like a nathaniel hawthorne story but when was this written like in the 50s or right. 60s right right so uh, in the 50s yeah so it's 
Yeah, it's it's definitely very deliberate in its sexiness. Yeah. What were you going to say, Todd? I think that the the whole idea of ceremony is one of the big things here mm-hmm. that is is fascinating. I mean, it, it says it right in the text that it's where they hold the Halloween program, the teen pageant, all that stuff at the square dance, all at the same place. And I think it it sort of speaks to our need as human beings to mark things with ceremony. Not that say getting married is bad. Don't look like the wedding ceremonies. Um, don't don't worry about that. Didn't I tell you guys we're just you guys are all gonna draw, you know, a little piece of paper. And, and one of us will for get two stoned. minutes. I will throw rocks at you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's but so there. It, it's not just an American thing about ceremony. I mean, ceremony has existed since the beginning of man. There has always been ceremony for things, and the idea that you have to sacrifice X to get Y. That I mean, that where it comes from, the superstition of, you know, rural superstition, where if you do this, the corn will grow, or you do this, the rain will come. Even going as far back as rain dances, things of that nature, all that is. I mean, it's part of our collective DNA, which I think is absolutely fascinating. We don't know how to live as human beings without ceremony, mm-hmm. um, and so this whole situation where they, you know, they have this old rickety box, and it's said that the box is a descendant of the original box that they used. All these things, these talisman of different ceremonies, and you do it because you do it, basically. I find it just absolutely fascinating that she's able to capture all of that in 2,000 words, or however long it is. It's a really short Well, she does those little great touches, too. Like, well, now we're using paper instead of the Mm -hmm. wood chips. You know, and, like, little things so you still feel like, oh, okay, so this isn't, like... it, 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 It adds, like... Even though it has this folkloric sort of, you know, generalized quality, there's enough specific details like the characters' names and like the families, the gossip. It all sort of feels just specific and yet general enough. You know, it's really, mm-hmm. it's really artfully done. I I love the story, um, and I think you're right, Julia, that it, it achieves an archetypical archetypal archetypical whatever however you say that quality that I feel. The Man in the Woods, the other story, the more recent story that was published, does not. And to me, uh, the lottery succeeds wonderfully where The Man in the Woods completely fails. Um, but okay, I'm interested so let's to hear talk about The Man in the Woods. Yeah, because I, 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 I read The I Man in the Woods note, first. Just for clarity, uh, the, the lottery came out in 1948. Yeah. Oh. Um, so I, I read The Man in the Woods first, and immediately I was was kind of turned off just um i guess i you know and this is this is a weird thought and i couldn't i it's i'm not sure if i'm gonna say it exactly right but i was trying to figure out what bothered me so much about this story and then i guess it was that it's reaching for a timeless quality um that ends up making it feel incredibly dated um there's something about Mm. the like generic mythicness where it's like you have a character named Christopher with his cat walking through the woods and it's it automatically feels like a Grimm's fairy tale like oh okay mm-hmm. we're in a Grimm's fairy tale sort of world and then you have like a character like oh is this going to be a witch character no her name is Circe and you're just like oh it's suddenly it's referencing Greek mythology and then I just got completely lost in this heavy-handed attempt at referential symbolism or referential mythical stuff that it just started to feel like it was trying so hard to be um 
in, to make a a, a, a a folklore, a new myth, a new story out of a certain tone that it just felt like, I don't know, like, isn't, we have a TV show called Grimm now that does this. Like, mm-hmm. it, feel, it felt very dated. It felt like that whole concept of appropriating old myths and appropriating folklore, like, that's done so much nowadays that it feels... Um, it feels like clearly something that was done in the like you know early in the mid twentieth century that seemed really new at the time, but now seems kind of cheesy and not that interesting. Whereas the lottery, like I said, had this nice balance of specificity and genericness, or generalness, general whatever. That it just had it had <laughs> the generosity. I don't know. It just had the right. Um, it, it 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 had its it had a very archetypical like it had a very good tone to it that balanced it whereas the man in the woods felt like it was reaching too far into a bunch of different traditions at once to make a stance to have a cool tone that it just felt trendy it felt like i don't know when it was written i'm assuming probably the 50s or the 60s it just felt like something that came out like i I wasn't surprised to find out that her husband was a folklore professor at bennington because that makes perfect sense it's like it, it was that time you know in the mid 20th century when people were writing about folklore studies and it just feels like I don't know. It just feels dated to me in a way. Um, well, I mean, it is dated. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's but the lottery doesn't, which is interesting. You know, like the lottery doesn't feel well, dated to me. That feels like a timeless reason, good story. I think story. the lottery doesn't feel dated has a lot to do with the narrative voice mm-hmm. because the lottery is written in a very subjective narrative voice. So it's written basically in the same narrative voice as Hills Like White Elephants or something, where every single thing is left up to the reader to figure out. Um, and the dialogue plays a huge role, whereas in The Man in the Woods, it's, it is an entirely different style, a closer narrative voice, obviously, to Christopher. Um, so we're more in his, in his skin as he's walking through the woods and getting mm-hmm. to this house, which I think naturally opens up bigger questions for us as readers, like, why the fuck don't you just leave? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? I know. They, they're, they're kind of opposite stories in a way, mm-hmm. in that, um, you know, in... In the lottery, we don't know anything, but all the characters know everything. And in this story, it's so obvious what's going to happen. It's so obvious what's happening that right. his unawareness of where he is or what's going on, you know, like it slows us down. It makes us feel like, okay, guy, like realize what's happening. Right. Um, so it is more frustrating in that way. But I mean, Ooh. I didn't hate it. I, th- I like the cat fighting. That was good. <laughs> <laughs> and we should we should basically tell a little bit about the story. You can all read it. It's a very yeah, short yeah. story. There's a, a man named Christopher who leaves college and goes for a long walk that apparently takes a, quite a bit of time because he goes from college to one wood to another wood to this wood. And he finds a road and he starts walking down the road. And at the end of the road is a giant stone cottage. He knocks on the door. He's let in by a woman that we presume is a witch. And her sister, who we also presume is a witch, who's making some gruel in a pot that nonetheless smells good. Then, in my mind, a giant comes in, but I guess he's just a normal-sized person mm-hmm. named Mr. Oak. I imagine him as a dapper man with a top hat. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. We have totally different internet searches. Uh... <laughs> He, Christopher, uh, sits down to a meal with these two women and this strange man named Mr. Oak, wherein the women and Mr. Oak speak in aphorisms mostly. Then Mr. Oak takes Christopher to a room 
where I guess all of human history has been stored um, in skin-covered books or something like that. And then he shows him some roses, and then he threatens to kill him, basically. And then uh, Christopher becomes boss of the house. No, well, he sharpens a knife. Mr. Oak yeah. sits down and sharpens a knife, and then it's like he goes outside, and Christopher kind of follows him, and you know that they're going to battle it out. Yeah. And it's a... Yeah. So recently I bought... Um, Philip Pullman, who wrote the Golden Compass and mm-hmm. those, that whole series, has a uh, his take on the um, the Grimm's fairy tales. Have you guys seen this book? No. no. It's actually really, really cool. And if anybody that if anybody liked this Shirley Jackson story, I highly recommend it. It's um, Philip Pullman took um, he he sort of reinterpreted Grimm's fairy tales, but he introduces each you know his favorite. It's it's kind of his selection of favorites. Um, but he also introduces each story and talks about why, you know, why he chose it and, and the different variations on it. And um, his introduction to that book is great. And he talks about, you know, the sort of um, the way that these stories function. And, the, and, and one of the things that he talks about, which I love, is, is the retelling and how you hear these stories and then you remember them, you misremember them, you retell them, and they sort of change and grow and... and um, I just think that that is such a better and more interesting approach than like what Shirley Jackson has done here, which is to sort of appropriate some of those traditions and nail it down into a, a short story form that just just feels heavy handed to me. And it feels, you know, like she has to leave it vague. You know, she has to leave it generic and vague enough that it can have this sense of foreboding and have this mythic quality. But then she's also got to throw in her like intellectual point you know towards the greek mythology with cersei and and i I just didn't i just it felt um it felt like it was trying too hard i'd so much rather she come up with a new story that isn't referential she's dead no i'm just saying at her time you know at the time yeah Yeah. (laughs) really crawl from your grave get to your typewriter well but i think she's also writing myth you know so she's appropriating other myths and then she's writing myth so it the the aspect of the story that we left out just now in the in the retelling is that it becomes clear in the story that the man who shows up is not the first man who has shown up, that there have been a lot of battles for whatever this is, that this Oak, Mr. Oak has fought many men. Um, and sometimes the men come with dogs. Sometimes the men come with cats. Um, it, it, so it's a cycle. Um, and so, you know, you can look at it as a myth story, or you can look at it as a story of, you know, an allegory for the family or whatever. But at the end of the day, I think it's also just supposed to be sort of a weird story that, you know, gives you the creeps. And I think most writers are, are at first just thinking I want to entertain. And so when I look at the story, I think, yeah, you know, it, I knew what was going to happen, but as I read it, I found myself entertained by it. Even if I thought this isn't as good as the other things of Shirley Jackson's that I've read, but that, that could be true whether or not it was found after her death. You know what I mean? Um, so I think the question also sort of becomes, did this need to go out into the world? Is this a story that the world needed of Shirley Jackson's in order to better understand her work? Did they want to see it? What does it add to her myth or her legend specifically also? So that I think there's a lot that gets built into it just by the nature of what it is, a found thing. Um, and so I, there's, uh, so I looked at it a little bit differently than I would what might be considered a finished story because maybe she wasn't done with it, you know? Maybe there was more she wanted to do. Yeah, or maybe she didn't like it. Hmm. 
Well, in that case, should yeah. it have been published? <laughs> I. It's hard. Probably I mean, not. it's hard to tell what she wanted. But I mean, it is. I do like the idea uh, within the story of a continuous replacement of those who guard, you know, history. Um, and I didn't read it, Todd, as that a lot of people had fought Mr. Oak. My interpretation was that every person who shows up replaces the last one mm. via battle. I see. Um, oh, and yeah. I felt like Christopher was going to become the new Mr. Oaks. Right, exactly. Um, and actually, there was a really cute animated short that flew around the internet uh, maybe a year ago or six months ago about like a librarian and it was totally the exact same story except just adorable like a man follows fluttering books in the sky and he gets to a library and there's an old lady there and then she like flies away and he's like oh i guess i'll live in this library forever which is totally <laughs> the shirley jackson story but you see it and you're like oh i want to live in a library forever and, <laughs> and yeah i'm gonna i'll put it on the facebook page because <laughs> I, I thought of it during the reading of the story but, I mean, I guess, yeah, the question is, what is this story about? And that's a harder question to answer than in the lottery. Mm -hmm. Because it's so into its own uh, mystery and twistiness um, that it's hard to determine, you know, like, what, what the takeaway is. If a story needs a takeaway, I guess it doesn't. I, too, was entertained. Yeah, well, I, the, uh, yeah, because the alternative is that it would be incredibly obvious, right? If it was, like, the story of how spring revives roses and whatever, you know, like if it was like a really clear, like through line, it would, wouldn't yeah. be a good myth. Cause good you're myths right, are right. always the sort of ambiguous and have this sense of like, wow, that relates to my life in some ways, but not in others. And, or it relates to families or, you know, stepmothers or whatever the sort of Grimm's fairy tale or Greek myth, whatever you're, you know, th th those are good because they sort of tap into something just specific enough but they always mm -hmm. have that level of ambiguity. Um, but this one, it just felt like it was reaching too hard for that ambiguity to me, um, especially since it, it had all the references. I, it's a it's a cool tone, though, you know, and, and I I like people that achieve what what Grimm's fairy tales or Greek myths do achieve. I like I mean, Amy Bender is somebody for me who achieves that, like in mm -hmm. some of her stories where she. She has that level of like foreboding and darkness and weirdness, but she, and sometimes it'll stay in a sort of general, you know, it doesn't feel specific. Like you don't know where you are, you don't know what time period you're in. It's just sort of this every time, every place. But um, she has a way to make it fresh without being referential that I really appreciate. And I think that I think that's a cool space to be in. Um, I just I just I don't I didn't really like Shirley Jackson's uh, take on it right here in this one. Well. In uh, in the New Yorker, they interviewed um, Jackson's son, um, and the New Yorker said, "In the Man in the Woods, two women, one younger named Phyllis and one older, who is known as Aunt Sissy, but insists that her real name is Cirque, cook and clean and keep the house running while sleeping in the kitchen and remaining subservient to the man of the house, Mister Oakes. What do you think these two women represent? How closely should we equate Aunt Sissy's role with that of Cirque in Greek mythology?" And her son says, and weirdly he calls her by her first name, he says, um, I think Shirley's use of the name was to make sure that the reader understands the mythological components, just in case he hadn't noticed. The symbols are abundant and almost playful, such as suggesting the fool and his dog from the tarot as a previous unsuccessful visitor. My, my mother took great care with the names of her characters. When their names are common, that is intentional. 
and when she names them Summers and Graves and Constance and Oaks, she does so with much meaning. Exactly. So yeah. she, I mean, she hits a lot of nails on much the head. Much meaning. It's that word, much mean. What meaning? Yeah, it's just, uh, it's so too And much, also, too uh, you know, the, the challenge is that, say, for instance, as previously discussed, you failed Greek and Roman mythology. <laughs> you might not have. <laughs> <laughs> the, the understanding of the names might mean very little. And, and you know, it was a different time. In the 50s, right. I think people read more of that stuff um, or were taught more of it. Um and today, perhaps people see the name and it means absolutely nothing to them, or they or they failed the class in college. So, it I think the difference between a story like this and something like Amy Bender's work is that Amy is you know she's writing surreal fiction that feels like fairy tales, but they are basically surreal because the real world is is almost surreal in her vision. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And I'm a huge fan. Mm-hmm. I'm a huge fan of, of Amy's. And, you know, I, her work has always been, I think, very, you can draw a very close line between, say, her short story, The Rememberer, which is about a woman whose boyfriend de-evolves to the point of, you know, a, you know, a one-cell thing that she drops off in the ocean as, you know, an, uh, an allusion to the end of a relationship or the, the how you stop right. loving someone or whatever it might be. So it's easy to see that parallel because it's a personal parallel. If all the parallels are to Greek and Roman mythology... If you don't know anything about Greek and Roman mythology, you're just like, well, that was a weird fucking story. That guy sharpened a big fucking knife. Huh. Well, I wonder I, what's going on in the real world. I will say, right. you know, like, obviously the Greek stuff was heavy-handed, but, you know, it, it's also very Dante's Inferno. You know, walk through a woods. You don't know how you got there with your cat guide. And, uh, you know, the cat would be Virgil in this instance. And then you basically <laughs> land in hell. Um, so, you know, like there's so many with these, when you have things as generic as woods and books and old people, uh, (laughs) you know, you can lay on so many different, you know, myths and traditions. I think, yeah, I agree. The mistake is putting in the Greek names because then you are, then you feel like you have, then you're being quizzed. You know what I mean? Rather Mm -hmm. than taking whatever your, right, right your understanding of human archetypes is and layering layering it on here. So I bet she would have gone back and changed the names. That is my guess. Like this, this was a draft and on her, on an edit, she would have taken out that line where, um, you know, it's like, no, it's not sissy. It's Cersei. You know, like that's so, that's something that someone would put in at first and then take out. I'm going to trust Shirley Jackson on this one. <laughs> well, I haven't read enough, but you know, if it, if she right. could rewrite it more like the lottery, then I agree. She probably. <laughs> yeah, we would like it to be yeah. the lottery. Well, you know what? We, we we should put a plug in actually for a new book that's coming out. A book called Shirley um, by someone we actually went to school with, Susie Merrill, Susan Merrill, in her fiction, which is a fictional account of Shirley Jackson's life, which comes out I think in June. If I didn't know this, correct. that's exciting. Yeah, I didn't know this at all. Yeah. Yeah, it's coming out in June. I mean, I can get the exact date if you'd like on the Amazon machine. Um, but yeah, it's coming out soon, um, and I've seen some good press for it. I, I think I saw Joyce Carol Oates talking about it somewhere that she'd already. So really, we uh, should have had Susan Merrill on our show this week. That would have. Yeah, been we really probably... fucked up. <laughs> sorry, Susan. Susan, if she probably would have done deeply, it. Deeply, <laughs> deeply sorry about not even thinking about this until minute fifty of the well, show that you would have been. That a great does person. remind me, though, that um, so. 
I didn't realize that Shirley Jackson was connected to Bennington, where, dear listeners, we all went to grad school together. And now knowing that, like, she's still Bennington. You know, like, you can put this. You can put the lottery and the secret history next to each other. And, like, it's so obviously from this same, you know, like, feeling and tradition. Yeah. It's so (laughs) amazing how Bennington has churned out so many writers that are all, they're living in their own mythic, archetypical world. Which is really mm-hmm. strange. I guess we're going to eventually start writing like that, you guys. Are you ready? <laughs> I feel like I write a lot about where I live as it is. Um, so just so you guys all know, Shirley, a novel by Susan Scarf Merrill, is her official author name, comes out uh, June 12, 2014. Um, it is a novel that takes place in 1964. A fictional young couple spends a year at Bennington in 1964 with novelist Shirley Jackson and her husband. In this captivating psychological thriller. Ooh, I am totally going to yeah, get we, that. Yeah, we totally should have had her on the show. <laughs> <laughs> oh, mistake. Well, well no something way. we can do this summer. She can sharpen a knife and fight our next planned guest to the death. And then we'll have Yes, that's a great them. idea. That is a great idea. Um, so that was uh, The Lottery by Shirley Jackson and her short story, The Man in the Woods. A Man in the Woods? What the hell is it called? The Man in the Woods. It's in the woods. The There's a guy. The He's walking yeah. through. Into the, the Man in the Woods. Um, <laughs> and we will put both of the links to both those stories up on our Facebook. Um, and then by the next time you see us, Julia, are you taking a new last name or are you keeping your name? That's a great question. Um, I am kind of doing neither i'm keeping my own last name but i'm going to take greg's last name as my second middle name so we're going to be we're one family but i will still have my own identity and greg is taking my last name as his other middle name as well nice oh yeah that's nice that's to do it yeah it's very pretty feminism huh. Ooh. <laughs> <Huh>. <laughs> um at, now uh, that we're I, wrapping up i would like to make a note which i forgot to make last time which is that during our last episode, The Stranger, <laughs> while oh we were talking, I oh retook God. the quiz, and oh, I was Jesus. emailed that I got 100%. So, just so you guys know, I'm Great not Great A failure. student. Great A student. <laughs> Teacher's pet. Wow. No, Teacher's no. pet. Retakes are important. Retakes? Retakes. <laughs> Did your did your mom call call in? Julia needs yeah, to take a test again during the show. That's what the My Germans mom. said after World War One. Retakes are important. <laughs> wow. Uh, wow. That's it for this episode of Literary Disco. Join us in two weeks when we will finally talk about the book we advertised last time, The Cathedral of Nervous Horses, a poetry collection from W. E. Butts. Literary Disco is edited and produced by Tucker Ives. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and thanks for listening. Can you guys, can you now hear the car alarm outside my house? No. No. No? Okay, great. All right, keep going. Go ahead.